Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. podcast where we talk about stuff let's see what what we did we used to about, say uh, we, <laughs> we take a random to, article wow, it's explore it then follow the links and see where it takes us that's the one the, the, yeah. the old rabbit hole spiel that's right yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, you'd think Man, we would have that memorized after like two years <laughs> but uh yeah I, I guess just slips you know you get out of practice. It's so, it's something that you don't memorize because you do it. So you do it once a week, yeah. every week. You just know that when it happens. But mm-hmm. as soon as you're out of sync with it, you're out of the routine. You don't have it memorized. <laughs> Repetition is not memorization. Yep. All right. Well, um, so, John, what do you have for us on our week back? Um, what I have for us tonight is Francesco Fidanza, who was an Italian painter whose present legacy is based mainly on his landscapes. It's kind of weird to think that a painter's legacy, if they diversify their portfolio, may be remembered for different things over the years. But I guess that is kind of true. I never really thought about it that way. Like, he's remembered right now for his landscapes, but back in the day, let me tell you. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, he was, he was an Italian painter. Uh, there's some other stuff in here, uh, a couple other links, mostly taking us to other Italian uh, places and to other Italian people um, who he was under the tutelage of. So we do have kind of an artsy route to take, which, if I recall correctly, is actually a little bit different. Hmm. Like a paint paint art route. We've we've done movies and music and what have yeah, you, but I can't remember many artists. No, like nobody who about. like took paint and put it on paper. Yeah, nothing like that. Hmm. Uh, what do you what do you got over there? Well, I have something actually pretty interesting. Uh oh, my kind of town. It's a single by Frank Sinatra. Oh, all right. Okay. That's a first. I do, I do have a real penchant for for Sinatra stuff. Got it? Not gonna yeah. lie. I mean, it's good. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, the man knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. It was uh, composed by Jimmy Van Hoosen. Lyrics by Sammy Khan. Ah, uh, good old Khan. <laughs> Gotta love Khan. Oh, boy. No, it was originally part of the musical score for Robin and the Seven Hoods, which was a musical film starring uh, some of the Rat Pack members. I'm assuming including Frank Sinatra. Robin and the Seven Hoods. <laughs> so they I'm did assuming it's a riff on like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but it's like an Ocean's maybe, Eleven maybe, sort of thing. Maybe it's like a Robin Hood meets Snow White, and it's like set in modern times. 
Maybe. And it's like gangsters. Or maybe they were more creative with their sequel names back then. It's actually <laughs> an Ocean's Eleven sequel. That could be. I mean, it's a Rat Pack film, right? The Ocean's the yeah. original Ocean's Eleven. That's true. I wonder. I have to wonder if it's not something similar because I feel like all those guys did would fill. That all they would do would be filming films about robbing people. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. But maybe not. Maybe we'd be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> question is do we want to indulge in something we haven't really talked about or do we want to indulge in something we've probably secretly wanted to talk about <laughs> but haven't had the opportunity to yeah I mean it's like I wanted to, to go a new route right but I also really want you don't really want to pass up Sinatra Sinatra's because you never know when this is going to come up again yeah this kind of thing yeah that's true At the same time, like, we might be able to deliberately nosedive into Sinatra's discography in some other fashion any given time. You know what we could do? What would be a nice challenge? Okay. All right. I'm following. Try to get to Sinatra from your article. Francesco Fidanza. Maybe even... Try to get to my article from your article. <laughs> I think that's entirely possible. If we can get to Sinatra from here, yeah, we can get once to we get to Sinatra, yeah. So we're gonna try to attempt a connection. <laughs> we're going to try to bridge the gap between your article and my article. Yeah. I don't think we've done that before, have we? I don't think so. That would be okay. All right, so we're we're starting with Francesco Fidanza. Francesco, spelled how you would spell it. Fidanza is. F-I-D-A-N-Z-A. You want to look it up and follow along. Fidanza. To... Italian painter. Okay. I can already tell you where we're going to end up. <laughs> Come hell or high water, we are ending yeah. up at... Call, calling it right now from Francesco Fidanza to my kind of town. Or else. <laughs> <laughs> or else we failed you as a podcast. Um, I do like that painting. Yeah. That actually is a pretty cool... Like, there's just enough happening. Mm-hmm. Not too much. Like, for the 1700s, 1800s, that is... I don't know. There's something modern about it. Kinda. It almost looks like a scene from an indie film, I think, is yeah. why it kind of seems modern. Because it seems like it's just sort of life happening mm-hmm. as opposed to something that seems posed or is a portrait yeah. of, like, specific people for a specific reason. It's nothing historical. It's just kind of like, huh. There are these ships and these yep. people, you know, going around the shipyard, you know? And the castle in the background kind of looks like it could be like a skyline, like a city. You got the smoke. I don't know. Just... You have like something kind of alluding to like, like the continuation of the city in the background. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Uh, that painting is called Mediterranean Scene with Fishermen in Front of a Cannon Shooting Galley. <laughs> That's by Francesco he, he was not a man of titles, that's for sure. He was a creative <laughs> in the most literal sense. In the titular sense, he was not. Or maybe he just didn't even name his paintings. Maybe he just painted them, put them out there, and then other people were like, Oh, what look. What do I call this? Uh, it's a Mediterranean. Uh, it's <laughs> a scene by the Mediterranean. There's fishermen, they're in front of a cannon, and there's a shooting galley. <laughs> like, that's how they named it. <laughs> he led it to his public. 
any event, Fidanza was born in Rome. He studied under Vernet and Charles-Francois Lacroix de Marseille, uh, from, who lived from 1700 to 1782. Uh, for Eugene Bohanes, he painted the Italian harbors, two of which, Encana and Malamico, with a landscape. And those are now in the gallery of the Castle Brera uh, at Milan. <laughs> so, there's a castle out there that has an art gallery in it? A castle that has an art gallery in it. And he was commissioned to paint Italian harbors. Not literally paint the harbors like... He wasn't painting the, the, the walls of them. He right. was painting the pictures like of we see harbors. of yeah. the harbors. Of the harbors. Um, the only other thing in this article is about his family. Father of Francesco Fidanza was Filippo Fidanza, who was born at Città di Castello, uh, Sabina, in 1720. He was instructed in painting by Marco Benefial at Rome. Subsequently, he studied and imitated... The great masters and many of his works in that genre are on public display in Rome's museums and collections. He died in 1790. Francesco's brother Giorgio was a disciple of Claude Lorraine and Salvatore Rosa, whom he imitated with success in his landscapes. He died in 1820, so it ran in the family. Yeah, it looks like it. But they were, unfortunately, imitators more than they were innovators. <laughs> yeah. And, unfortunately, that resulted in them being primarily known for, uh, you know, doing stuff <laughs> that had been done. Still, credit where credit's due. That painting's cool. Yeah. Based on that one painting. Looks good. like it. I would hang that up yeah, if these sure. citations weren't coming from Sotheby's <laughs> and Bonham's, some of the most, most expensive and prestigious auction houses in the world. <laughs> Which we've been over already. We've been over the, the auctioning thing, haven't we? Where yeah. <laughs> the mysterious art of why why somebody standing in the front of the room saying stuff fast gets hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Mostly because they broke the system. Oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so to, where do you think is a good option for us? We could just go to... Italian. I think that is probably our best bet because we all know that Frank Sinatra has Italian heritage. Right. So he is an Italian. He'll be in that realm. Right. So we may as well go there. Unfortunately, that takes us to the entire country <laughs> of Italy. Oh man, whole country doesn't really narrow our scope. But it does broaden it enough that we might have a hint, a hope of, uh... Yeah. Sinatra's not in this article, but that doesn't mean he's yeah. not accessible from it. Culture... Yeah, what we need to do is get to, like, Italian-American. Right. Mm. 
There's a link to Academy Awards in here. And I did read that the song was nominated for Academy Award. Aha. Well, then, there we go. So, that could be a good idea. Oh, unfortunately, isn't it... uh... Oh, wait, no, it is Academy Award. Yeah. So, but it's only about that. Okay, <laughs> all right. So we have that option. So I guess we should uh, pay some homage to. Yeah, we should at least talk about it. Because I feel like at this point, we have calculated it out to the point of like being like, okay, Academy Award year, <laughs> music, yep, film, song, song. Done. <laughs> and since the Italy uh, Wikipedia page is uh, about, I don't know. You know what? I'm gonna try and print this real quick. <laughs> I'm gonna see how many pages it is. So it would be 40 sheets of paper. Just FYI. Just on Italy. So as we know, Italy is in Europe. It is a unitary parliamentary republic in Europe. It's located at the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, and it shares open land borders with France, Switzerland, Austria, Slovenia, San Marino, and the Vatican, covering 301,338 kilometers squared and largely a temperate seasonal climate or Mediterranean climate. Due to its shape, it is often referred to as Lostival. Eo Stival, or the boot. With, uh, six, yes, the boot. with 61 million inhabitants, it is the fourth most populous EU member state. So, since the classical times, ancient Carth- Carthaginians, Phoenicians, and Greeks established settlements in the south of Italy with Etrus- Etruscans? Etruscans? I trust you. <laughs> and Celts inhabiting the center and north of Italy, respectively, and various different Italic tribes and peoples dispersed throughout the country. The Italic tribe, known as the Latins, formed the Roman Kingdom, which eventually became a republic that conquered and assimilated other nearby civilizations. Rome ultimately emerged as the dominant power in the Mediterranean Basin, conquering much of the ancient world and becoming the leading cultural, political, and religious center of Western civilization. The legacy of the Roman Empire is widespread and can be observed in the global distribution of civil law, republican governments, Christianity, and the Latin script. During the Middle Ages, Italy suffered social-political collapse amid calamitous barbarian invasions, but by the 11th century, numerous rival city-states and maritime republics rose to great prosperity through shipping, commerce, and banking, laying down the groundwork for modern capitalism. These independent starlets, statelets, whatever, uh, acting as Europe's main trading hubs with Asia and the Near East, often enjoyed a greater degree of democracy and wealth in comparison to larger feudal monarchies that were consolidated throughout Europe at the time, 
though much of central Italy remained under the control of the theocratic papal states, while southern Italy remained largely feudal until the 19th century, partially as a result of the succession by the Byzantine, Arab, Norman, Spanish, and Bourbon conquests of the region. Mm, Bourbon. Bourbon can conquest my region any day. (laughs) Must be a nice conquest they had there. Mm, Relaxing, refreshing (laughs) conquest. Sitting by the fire, that's my kind of conquest. (laughs) So... Yeah, I find it, it's interesting how the Roman Empire was much bigger than Italy itself. Like mm, I, I yeah. often don't really think about it now that Rome is a city in Italy. Right, and but, now it's just kind of the cultural influence it now has, <laughs> pretty diminished. Yeah. But the cultural influence it had to get us to this point in human history... Still pretty massive. <laughs> yeah. If you if you go back far enough. Yeah. I mean, plumbing it was them. Roads. Oh yeah. Every, every time we come across a piece of technology, it was all already done. Already done by the Romans. They did it. <laughs> and I don't really know. I I never really like think about that because again, like now, yeah, you're right. Like it's not <laughs> a, a city that comes up even much conversationally. I feel yeah. like. like nobody's there for any particular reason. It's just around. It's just the city, you know? Yeah. I guess it's because for all that Rome did, that was like 2,000 years ago for the most part. What Rome did was be Rome, have the Roman Empire, then Dark Ages, Dark Ages, Dark Ages, (laughs) Renaissance, more Dark Ages, Dark Ages, Dark Ages, World War II, and we're here. (laughs) Like, that's where we're at. It's about what they did. Yeah. So it's kind of and it's kind of weird that they had repeated prominence like that. That was very like robust mm. and distinct, and then it went away very quickly. <laughs> both times, <laughs> I think maybe now they're just kind of like laying low because they're like things are actually like legit good. Yeah. Let's not try <laughs> to be a world power. Let's just kind of you know, because every time this is we've done this before and mm. it's led to dark ages. Let's just not do it. Let's make somebody else. <laughs> let's make somebody else the fall guy this time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the current uh, president of Italy is Sergio Mattarella. Mattarella. Mozzarella. Got it. <laughs> and the prime minister is Paolo Gentiloni. Gentiloni. Baloney, you got it. <laughs> so, what is the difference between a prime minister and a president? Well, the prime minister is this guy who's kind of more wrangling all the members of the um, House of Representatives. He's kind of like the, the guy who conducts the sessions and tries to keep order in the House of Representatives, whereas the president's obviously in a whole different branch of the government. The president's just the executive yeah. branch... Figurehead like guy. Doing decisions. And right. Like but, I mean, when you're thinking about, like, I think the, the example I always jump to is the United Kingdom, where you think about somebody like Tony Blair, who right. you know the name of because he was the prime minister, not because mm. he was the president, because the president in Britain would be the queen. Right. That's the equivalent. Yeah, you, you hear all about the queen and stuff. But, right. But the queen yeah. isn't the one that you see meeting with the president of our country, because yeah. the queen isn't the one who She's does, not, does that. She can't be bothered to no. <laughs> go out. Why? 
Like she has no reason to do that. Beyond that, she's like 120. Like, yeah. <laughs> she, like she can't go anywhere. She's barely a human being. She's like. Like if we want to visit her, that's fine. Yeah, but she's a couple of car rides away from just being a pile of dust. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about the. I guess the Canadian people might care about that still. Yeah, they, maybe. They actually cared about the Queen after after they left. They still have her on, on their money. <laughs> like. Like they yeah, mourned. They, they went a very different route from from us. us. Yeah, yeah. We just kind of like, oh, you have a leader. That's nice. <laughs> hey, who says your uh, king can tell us what to do? Huh? We're all the way over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Canada's like, you know what? That was some pretty good leadership. We respect you, Queen. <laughs> we would come back under your leadership any day if it wasn't entirely impractical and if we didn't have a better economy. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna do our own thing. But thanks for all the stuff. So long, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> Okay, something interesting here. The name of Italy has its own article, as it, which is to say, like how the country got its name has its own <laughs> article. Uh, the assumptions for the etymology of the name Italia are very numerous, and the corpus of the solutions proposed by historians and linguists are very wide. According to one of the more common explanations, the term Italia, which is from the Latin, uh, well, Italia, uh, was borrowed through Greek from the Oscan Vitellu, meaning land of young cattle, which makes sense because there's a lot of veal that you can get at Italian restaurants. And vitality. Vital. They're young. They're vital. Yep. Uh, the bull was a symbol of the southern Italian tribes and was often depicted goring the Roman wolf as a defiant symbol of free Italy during the Social War. Greek historians Dionysus of Halicarnassus states that this account, together with the legend uh, that Italy was named after Italus, mentioned by Aristotle and Thucydides, the... Th- Thucydides. All right, nailed it. The name Italia originally applied only to a part of what is now southern Italy. According to Antiochus of Syracuse, the southern portion of the Brutium Peninsula, modern Calabria, province of Reggio, and part of the provinces of Canenzaro and Vibo Valentia. But by this time, Oinotria and Oinotra. Italy. Oh, <laughs> And Italy had become synonymous, and the name also applied to most of Luciana as well. The Greeks gradually came to apply the name Italia to a larger region, but it was during the reign of Emperor Augustus that the term was expanded to cover the entire peninsula until it hit the Alps. That hmm. was in the first century BC. Well. Not comes from not comes from a name, yeah. Unless you live in the Americas, in which case there's a guy who came from Italy. He was on a boat, and he said, <laughs> "You know, nobody's given these things a name yet." And that guy's name was Amerigo Vespucci, <laughs> and so Amerigo, Ameriga, America. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, their uh, excavations have unearthed. Neanderthals dating back 200,000 years. So, people have been there a while. Yeah. Been doing stuff there a while. Not so much in America. They're kind of in the ground floor of where 
things were beginning. Obviously, this is a big uh, art uh, hub, historically speaking. Got your um, Ninja Turtles. Um, yeah, all, all four of them. Yeah. <laughs> Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael. What's the other one? Claude Monet. Okay, Donatello. Donatello, yeah. Um, but yeah. So you got, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, kind of a big deal in the art world. <laughs> you know. Also in the science world. First guy yeah, to manage to lock down a human corpse and cut it open against the wounds <laughs> of the church. Not many people can claim to be a groundbreaking artist and a quite innovative inventor and scientist. Yeah. I mean, his... He took the skills of an artist's realism and applied them to the scientific, which mm. was just like, whoa, did that need to happen? <laughs> and, yeah, using creativity to be like, you know what? I want to fly in the air. I'm going to make something that does that. <laughs> <laughs> and and finally, like at least putting some really good thoughts down on paper about that kind of thing yeah. instead of just, you know. Yeah, he like worked out an early helicopter. Which, which is impressive considering... Yeah. Helicopters I mean, weird. <laughs> they had uh, everything else in ancient Rome. Why not have helicopters in Middle Ages? <laughs> I have I have a feeling that if they had held the Renaissance era together a little better, a little bit longer, you might have had helicopters <laughs> like before you had hot air balloons. Yep. Um, they also have a strong um, film. Um, whatever. <laughs> Yes, a you strong know. film whatever. <laughs> the same way that Hollywood is known for its strong kind of industry or something. Yeah, they uh, they got that's where you get your spaghetti westerns and that's where you get your cinema paradiso. Lots of good stuff film wise coming out of Italy. For sure. And a lot of interesting stuff from a geological perspective. There's actually a lot of really interesting biodiversity in Italy, not to mention the fact that they have, like, everything ranging from mountainous, cold, icy year-round climates all the way down to Mediterranean, like, very hot equatorial climates year-round. Then they, on top of that, they also have volcanic activity out the wazoo. It's a really interesting little yeah, country. Is that uh, Vesuvius? Is that in Italy? Vesuvius is in Italy, and that is, of course, where Pompeii was buried by mm. volcanic explosions. And there, yep. There's a couple of super volcanoes in, in Italy. In point of fact, for being such a small country, it, has, it really packs a wallop as well, far as the volcanic activity goes. I assume that's a peninsula kind of amps up your... Being a peninsula, probably. At least a know? little bit. Especially an exceptionally like, pointy peninsula. That ups yeah. your chances. Like, when, once you're out there in the water, like... If you are jagged and pointy and have some mountains on you, <laughs> watch out. There's going to be volcanoes around. Like, there's a couple pretty sizable volcanoes in America, but, you know, they are a lot closer in proximity in Italy. Yes. Very high concentration. Like, right right there. Obviously not probably quite as much as something like Hawaii or Japan, but... No, but still, pretty close. Pretty yeah. close. Yeah, they have pretty big marks all around, like, in every kind of facet of everything. 
They do. Like in the music scene, that's where you get your opera. And, you know, they've obviously Italian immigrants have spawned people who have, you know, been big in the music world in America. And uh, you get Gucci and Armani, Prada and stuff like that from, you know, for fashion and stuff. And their culinary uh, tendencies and cuisine has dominated the world stage yeah. in America, at least. I mean, look any any city or town, there will be at least five pizza shops. <laughs> Not to mention how many pizza chains there are mm-hmm. across the United States. Like, uh, and even where there aren't chains, there's still little mom and pop mm-hmm. pizza shops. So, I mean, it, it, it stands to reason, though. I mean, olives are great. Grapes are amazing. Wine is awesome. The espresso? Kind of espresso is necesso. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, they also make, like, really good sports cars. They make, they, they've made yep. uh, really cool jets and really awesome designs on... Everything from bullet trains to furniture. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's a lot to be said about the Italian people. And I think modern Italian culture has more of an influence than we think. I just don't think we can afford it yet. Yeah. <laughs> See, I think what happened is early on they were like, hey, let's dominate and let's conquer the world. Mm-hmm. And then that fell apart. And then they were like, you know what? Why don't we conquer the world? By being awesome. Right. And just spreading our awesomeness throughout the world. And then everybody will use all of our stuff and copy us. And not really know that's better than having owning the world anyway. Right. And they basically have done that. And I think that if you visited Italy and looked at like the higher ends of society there, you would see things that our higher ends of society don't really do as well or mm. as much. Just the care that yeah. they would have invested into every facet of their lives with their wealth would far surpass what American tech billionaires yeah. have. Like, it'd be ours. Ours would see our 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 investments would seem Cro-Magnon by comparative by yeah. comparatively. I mean, the things I have seen Italy make have <laughs> it, it, even from like a modern stance have always just been like, wow, look at that. That's that's really cool. That's really sleek. It's new, but it still has natural elements. It's a really quality thing. The only thing they can't do is mass produce a good car, <laughs> and that's not. They can build one amazing car, but right. <laughs> but they can't. But they cannot build a million good cars. Yeah. That's against their very nature, though. That's not the way they want to do things. So stands to reason. Yeah. So are we ready to? I think I think we're about ready to. I mean, we could go on about Italy all day. There are things like Venice, and don't don't even get started on things like the Sistine Chapel, the Tower of Pisa, mm-hmm. all the various landmarks. I, yeah, mean, I mean, like anything else we talk about, you already know. Like you know about all the big, the big things, the tourist attractions, and things to see. You know about Luciano Pavarotti. You know about Ferrari. You know about lasagna. At the end of the day, isn't that really all you need? No, because we're going to talk to you about Frank Sinatra soon. We're going to do it soon. (laughs) We're going to go to the Academy Awards, like, right now. Right now. Academy Awards. Here we come. So the Academy Awards were started in 1929. 
So we're closing in on the 90th anniversary of these things. Just kind of crazy. Like, I think they started when there were still silent movies. They had to have. I mean, they didn't have soundtracks on movies consistently until, I want to say the 40s, right? No, it was early. Late 30s. Mid-30s? Uh, 30s. Because Wizard of Oz is like 33. And color was the big innovation with that, so yeah. sound had I mean, to be I a little earlier. It was, my guess is early 30s. Because I mean... Late, 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 late 20s. Because... I know the 20s definitely had a lot of silent movies, but, um, yeah, can't remember exactly when Well, How about the, this? Wait. We can, well, first, hold on. I mean, <laughs> we can think about it this way. The award ceremony was first broadcast to radio in 1930, and it was first presented in oh. 1929. Now, if they can beam audio to your house from across the country, they can probably record it onto a film at that point in time, right? The very first movie to have sound was in 1927. Okay, so it wasn't long after that. Right. But I'm sure it was like one of those things where obviously not every movie is going to jump on board no. with sound even in the first couple years mm. it's probably going to be a while so it was probably in like 1930 maybe that it started becoming like common, more common to have sound than not sound right that makes sense I mean and it was a rough transition for a lot of people too because the people who you know um, had become really famous in silent movies couldn't really make the transition because some of them didn't exactly have movie voices yeah. to go along with movie looks. Yep. Yep. It's one of those things that ruins a lot of careers, but, you know. Audio killed the <laughs> video star. <laughs> yes, if you want to learn more about that whole thing, go watch this uh, Singing in the Rain. You will learn many things. And have a good time while doing it. Fred Astaire. Wait, that wasn't Fred Astaire, was it? No, it was. Uh, Why do I always think it's Fred Astaire? <laughs> I feel like I've made that mistake in, like, before. Tons of. And there's a movie with singing and dancing, <laughs> and it's from that time. Of course, there's Fred. Ast- Fred Astaire's gotta be in there somewhere. Is he an extra? Is he directing? Is he choreographing? What's he doing? You can't not be in it. You're lying. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I I don't doubt you. Yeah. I haven't actually seen it's that Gene movie. Kelly. End to I mean, end. It's, Similar. And, he, okay. He's about the same as Fred Astaire. Je- Gene Kelly is pretty cool. Gene Kelly's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, well, we we do have a direct link to Best Original Song. Which we will need which, to do yeah. to be able to get where we want to go. So, we, we know for a fact that we can get where we need to go. Yes. It's right there. Blue and white, clear as crystal. <laughs> So it won't be a problem. Oh, what? And what? I just came across a link for PricewaterhouseCoopers. Wait, what? Which is yeah a link that we came across in what the last episode that we did? Yeah, I, I think so. It was either an episode. Yeah, or an episode it was the Fly Globe Span. Right, right. Fly Globe Span. Fly Globe Span. 
still not easy to say. <laughs> Price Waterhouse Coopers. Uh, hmm. Interesting. Votes have been certified by the auditing firm Price Waterhouse Coopers for the past 73 annual. Why what? do you need to audit votes for for something that's like a very exclusive <laughs> council? There's only 5,783 people. We don't have something. We don't have an authority to audit our own votes for like the presidential election. Like, why do we have one to off to 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 audit every vote cast for the freaking movie awards? <laughs> that just doesn't seem right. Oh yeah, it's very odd. A little bit, just a bit. Let's see, is there something about the statuette? And how it came to be. There is something about the... Well, actually, there's an entire section on that. So, to pay homage to this article, we should probably go a little bit into the statue itself because it's become its its own icon. I mean, yeah. the, cer- the, the, the ceremony itself, you can imagine, <laughs> it has its own illustriousness and pomp and circumstance and fair share of TV ratings, but mm-hmm. what about the little guy that has worked its way into our... Imaginations. Everybody's thought about their Oscar speech. <laughs> well, um, the Oscar statuette is made of gold-plated Britannium on a black metal base. Odd choice of element. Specifically Britannium. <laughs> it's Britannium. I, I don't know that I've seen much Britannium. I don't think that has really pertained to my life. (laughs) But uh, it is exactly 13.5 inches tall and the ward weighs 8.5 pounds. Which is actually kind of heavy. Yeah. For those who are curious, Britannia metal is 92% tin, 6% alimony, I mean antimony, (laughs) and 2% copper. That's... So that's some, you know, pewter. It's basically pewter. <laughs> well, okay. So here's where I start questioning what I'm reading. Um, it depicts a knight rendered in Art Deco style holding a crusader's sword, sword standing on a film reel of real, wait, a reel of film with five spokes. Five spokes represent the original branches of the academy, actors, writers, directors, producers, and technicians. Let's take a look at this uh, statue. What? <laughs> that statue is holding a sword. Hold on, what? The it's, Academy it's Award is holding a sword in its hands that are crossed. Where? It's it. It's, it's down. It's, it's right straight down, right between his legs, huh? Yep. Let's see if we can get a higher res picture of one of these things from like the side, maybe. The side view would be really, really wow. cool. How have I never in my life seen that he's holding a sword? I always just thought he was just kind of like holding his arms there. Yeah, I thought it was just like but a guy. That that guy is holding a sword, and it's. Right, like just going right down between his legs. And he's standing on a reel of film. Yes, he is. He's standing on a reel of film. That's what that's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, if you get the closer look, you can see 
the uh the spokes yeah interesting so it is a lot more okay All there's right. a lot more to this thing it it just kind of looks like a little I don't know, whatever. Little guy before. And like, I guess that's why I didn't get the prestige, but I guess if you look at this thing up close and personal, it's actually a little yeah, more like, neat. Like, if you actually got one, you'd be like, wow, there's actually a lot to this thing. Huh. Oh. That is very intriguing. Less notably, but still somewhat important, the model for the statuette is said to be Mexican actor Emilio El Indio Fernandez. I'm not, really, cool. I'm not really sure how you would discern that that was you, though. <laughs> like that That's probably the least yeah. conspicuous part about the entire thing is the facial features. Yeah, they. it's definitely a very kind of generic face mm-hmm. that is no discernible. <laughs> like, no features at all. Sculptor George Stanley, who did the Muse Fountain at the Hollywood Bowl, sculpted Cedric Gibbons' design. The statuettes presented at the initial ceremonies were gold-plated solid bronze. Within a few years, the bronze was abandoned in favor of Britannia metal, a pewter-like alloy, which is then plated in copper, nickel silver, and finally 24 karat gold. Hmm. Due to a metal shortage during World War II, Oscars were made of painted plaster <laughs> for three years. What a I bummer. Wonder, I wonder what those Oscars are worth now. I, I feel they like must be worth a I ton. feel like they would be worth more than the gold-plated ones. Because they have the most chance of being <laughs> absolutely wrecked. And I like they're imagine. rare. Like so yeah. if you find one in good condition, like that's gotta be I don't know. It's is that is that irony? No, it's actually but, devoid of all metals. <laughs> <laughs> There's no iron in there at all. <laughs> well, following the war, the Academy invited recipients to redeem the plaster figures for gold-plated metal uh, ones. So there's even more collector's value on that thing now. Yeah. The only addition to the Oscar since it was created is a minor streamlining of the base. The original Oscar mold was cast in 1928 at the C.W. Shumway & Sons Foundry in Batavia, Illinois, which also contributed to casting the molds for the Vince Lombardi Trophy and the Emmy Awards statues. Hmm. From 1983 to 2015, approximately 50 Oscars were made each year in Chicago by Illinois manufacturer R.S. Owens & Company. It takes between three and four weeks to manufacture 50 statuettes. Oh, wow. Seems like a long time. It's a, it's a weird thing that it keeps bouncing around Illinois, too. Like, yeah. For a ceremony that has very little to do with Illinois, <laughs> yeah. and you could just make it in California, yeah. I'm pretty sure. You have to get those shipped. I wonder if there's ever been like a heist on a stat, like an Oscar statue delivery. That would be interesting, because, like, they wouldn't be made out to the winners yet. They wouldn't be engraved, yeah. so you could just kind of get blank Oscars. They would still be the genuine article all the same. Yeah. That would probably be worth more. What, what Oscars are blank? Don't they have them <laughs> engraved? Um, or is that too risky before the awards are announced? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I, like I, th- I maybe be, I think what happens is that you get your Oscar and maybe afterwards they engrave it for you. Because yeah, that makes more sense. I know that 
what happens on stage is they're holding a fake Oscar, and then when they walk out off the stage, they pick up their real Oscar right out back there. So I don't know if maybe they're like on site engraving, and while like the people come out to get their real Oscar, mm-hmm. that's like they already have it made. I don't know, but I mean that seems pretty likely to me. That doesn't seem like there'd be any reason to think that they do it any other way. It's just like any graduation ceremony, really. Yeah. They give you a fake folder that's full right. of nothing, <laughs> and then you get your thing that actually has your name on it in yeah. the mail. <laughs> Ooh. So in 2016, they returned to bronze as the core metal of the statuettes, handing manufacturing duties to Rock Tavern New York-based Polytalix Fine Art Foundry. So they're going even further east. Gotta go further away. <laughs> Can't get closer. Not, not how that Just works. How? There's, is there no place in all of California that can make this statue? No. <laughs> <laughs> but while it's based on a digital scan of an original 1929 Oscar... The new statuettes will retain their modern era dimensions and black pedestal. Cast in liquid bronze from 3D printed ceramic molds and polished, they are then electroplated in 24 karat gold by Brooklyn, New York based Epner Technology. The time required to produce 50 such statuettes is roughly three months. R.S. Owens is expected to continue producing other awards for the Academy and service existing Oscars. So wait, they just moved it further away. They made it take two months longer than it used to take. What? And they're still having the old company touch up old ones that are getting beaten up. So who? <laughs> what? So I guess I just don't understand. Yeah, I, I, I don't get the logic here. This seems like they made every choice they had made before, except worse. (laughs) I mean, I guess we are talking about the Oscars here, and they're not necessarily known for their great decision making. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That is true. They are a body with many faults. (laughs) You know. Oh. Engraving. Here we go. Okay, there we go. To prevent information identifying the Oscar winners from leaking ahead of the ceremony, Oscar statuettes presented at the ceremony have blank base plates. Until 2010, winners were expected to return the statuettes to the Academy after the ceremony and wait several weeks to have inscriptions applied. Since 2010, winners have had the option of having engraved nameplates applied to their statuettes at an inscription processing station at the Governor's Ball, a party held immediately after the Oscar ceremony. In 2010, the R.S. Owens Company made 197 engraved nameplates ahead of the ceremony, bearing the names of every potential winner. The 175 or so nameplates for non-winning nominees were recycled afterwards. Huh. Hmm. Well, I guess that solves the problem. It really yeah. lends no mystery to it if everybody has one. Yeah. Okay, well, now that we know about the uh, Oscar statuette a little bit more, should we try to get a little further in our quest toward... I think so. My town? I think it is time to go to Best Original Song. All right. Best Original Song. 
The Academy Award for Best Original Song is one of the awards given annually to people working in the motion picture industry by the American... Uh, by, uh, wow. <laughs> Complete and total vocal <laughs> failure there. Excuse me. Uh, uh, by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, or AMPAs. It is presented to the songwriters who have composed the best original song written specifically for a particular film. The performers of a song are not credited with the Academy Award unless they contributed either to the music, lyric, or both in their own right. The award category was introduced at the 7th Academy Awards, the ceremony honoring the best film in the best in film for 1934. Uh, nominations are made by Academy members who are songwriters and composers, and the winners are chosen by the Academy membership as a whole. So, 1960s, 1964, my kind of town. Now, we could go to Robin and the Seven Hoods, yeah. And then go to Frank Sinatra, and then yeah. go to My Kind of Town, so that we end on that one. Right. Let's do it that way. Because I do want to see what Robin and the Seven Hoods is all about. Yes. Okay. So, Robin and the Seven Hoods. Peter Falk. Barbara Rush. Edward G. Robinson. Bing Crosby. Dean Martin. Sammy Davis Jr., obviously Frank Sinatra. So, yep, uh, it is a 1930s Chicago gangster setting of Robin Hood. Oh, okay. And it's a musical (laughs) on top of that. Yep. So, uh, the story's utterly... Opportunistic Marion is very different from the faithful maid Marion of the original legend. So that's kind of a change up a little bit. Oh, and Frank Sinatra actually produced the movie as well. I didn't really realize how much he got involved in film. I mean, I knew he was like an actor. But yeah, he apparently was like pretty behind the scenes yeah. sort of sort of guy too. In addition to just being in front of the scenes and writing the scenes and singing the scenes and maybe dancing, <laughs> he dance. I don't know. Did he dance? Did he do everything? Did he do everything? Did Sinatra do everything? Probably. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I mean, it seems like if anybody's going to be able to do it, it'd be him, and he would do it his way. Yeah. In uh, New York. <laughs> New York, New York. In case there was any confusion. Not New York, Chicago, or New York, Illinois. Well, let's fly fly away with me, if you will, Eric, <laughs> to, to the plot of, of this movie. Big Jim Stevens, played by Edward G. Robinson, undisputed boss of the Chicago underworld, gets an unexpected birthday present from his ambitious lieutenant guy Gisborne, played by Peter Falk. Instead of a stripper popping out of the cake, Big Jim gets shot by all the guests. Hooray! Oh <laughs> With the mob boss out of the way, Gisborne takes over. He orders all the gangsters in town to pay him protection money, but declares it's still all for one. The news does not sit well with Big Jim's fellow gangster, Robbo, and a gangland war breaks out. Robbo, who is actually Frank Sinatra, 
recruits pool hustler Little John, Dean Martin, who demonstrates his billiard skills while singing A Man Who Loves His Mother. Plus, quick draw artist Will, played by Sammy Davis Jr. Jr., and a few other hoods. But uh, they are still greatly outnumbered. In addition, the corrupt Sheriff Octavius Glick is on Gisborne's payroll. Gisborne and Robbo come up with the same idea, to destroy the other's gambling joint on the same night, with Will enjoying every moment of shooting up Gisborne's place, which is portrayed in the number Bang Bang. So, they chose a few names to, like, correspond, like Robbo and Little John, but then did they just completely disregard all the other characters in Robin Hood? There's some other people who wore hoods, you know. They're just like, uh, we'll just make up some names. I don't know. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> they're not being faithful to the subject matter. Like, where, where's is the oppressive thing? Like, they're going, it's gambling joint versus gambling joint. Yeah. It's not, it's not like the law All they is really corrupt. need is Robin Hood. It, what? But, <laughs> I just have some problems with how that they, they, they've chosen to go about trying to modernize it. It just seems yeah. weird to me that, like, hey, we're a casino. You're also a casino. Let's fight. Is somehow the take from the needy and give to the poor. I, yeah, I don't know where they're going with that aspect of the I, story. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Regardless, uh, uh, Big Jim's refined, educated daughter, Marion, played by Barbara Rush, shows up. She asks Robbo to avenge her father's death, wrongfully attributed to the sheriff, a request which Robbo flatly refuses. Gisborne disposes of the sheriff. Marion then invites Robbo to dinner and gives him $50,000, falsely assuming that Robbo did as she had asked. Robbo refuses the money, so Marion attempts to seduce him into joining forces to take over the whole town. Robbo turns her down. When she sends the money to his under-repair gambling club, Robbo donates it at, to a boy's orphanage. <laughs> Alan A. Dale, played by Bing Crosby, who happens to be the orphanage's director, notifies the newspapers about this good deed. A new Chicago star is born, a gangster who robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Okay, there it is. There's the crux. There's how they <laughs> fixed it. Robbo finds it useful to have the public on his side. He invites the delighted Dale to join his gang, the Rescue Rangers, and having him handle all the charities. Dale starts the Robbo Foundation and opens a string of soup kitchens, free clinics, and orphans' shelters. He gives, he even gives green feathered hats and bulls My and goodness. arrows to the orphans while uh, thoroughly milking the Robin Hood image. In the meantime... Robbo and Little John give tips to Dale on how to improve his own image in the song Style. Very much uh, getting less interesting. <laughs> yep. In it's just it's just kind it of like being forceful. Kind of about... interesting, but not Robin Hood at all, and now yep. it's getting more Robin Hood and less not interesting. interesting. <laughs> uh, but it's because it's because it's not like trying to really like usurp the elements of the story of Robin Hood that made Robin Hood good. It's just trying to be like, hey, look, it's look he he's giving the poor people. He's rich. He's <laughs> giving the poor people. There's there's some green, bows and arrows. There's a feather hat. Hey, what else do you want? Shut up. Take it. <laughs> like, it seems it's, it's just like, like it's a like little they started a movie and they're like, the oh wait, this is supposed to be Robin Hood. 
Uh, you here's know all the Robin Hood stuff. Yeah, we have 15 minutes left in the picture. Make it Robin Hood there at the end. Good. <laughs> you fixed it. Good job. Robbo's joint reopens and is an instant hit while Gisborne, whose place is now empty, is infuriated. He and the new sheriff, Potts, organize a police raid. Robbo has anticipated this. And when a few switches are pulled, the entire club is disguised as a mission. <laughs> what? <laughs> the sheriff and Gisborne burst in to find Robbo's gang slinging gospel songs and preaching about the sins of alcohol, complete with hymnals and tambourines in the song Mr. Booze. Hmm. Robbo is framed for Glick's murder. At the trial, Gisborne and Potts claim that Robbo planned the whole thing. Dale tries to teach the despondent orphans to view this as a lesson in Don't Be a Do Batter. <laughs> the jury finds Robbo innocent. Wearing a green suit, Robbo publicly thanks everyone in Chicago in the song My Kind of Town, the one that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. That does not have a link from here. Um. <laughs> Well, Frank Sinatra, I'm sure. No, there oh, is a link. Down there. It's down yeah. there. It's down there. Yeah. We're, we're, we're okay. I, I panicked because that was the first time we came across <laughs> it in the article, and I was like, well, surely it would be this one, but it's not. <laughs> when he returns to his club, Robbo finds every one of his charities is now a front for counterfeiting. The soup kitchen smuggles fake bills in soup cans over state lines. Robbo also finds that little John is living it up in Marion's mansion. And Marion is willing to keep Robbo as a front as long as she is in charge. Robbo shows his contempt for her and leaves with little John following him out the door. Marion finds another willing partner in Gisborne, but the gangster is no match for Robbo and is killed. What? <laughs> Hold on, that like happened in one sentence. In one <laughs> sentence, he like walks out. Marion's like, whatever, there's this dude. And then he walks back in and shoots him in the face. <laughs> like, that was how that that's how they handled that part plot point. Was like he shows up and he just gets killed. Anyway, Robbo tells a shark Marion to clear out of town because, you know, he just walked in and murdered a guy. Mm -hmm. It was a little, little sporadic. <laughs> she instead turns public opinion against him, starting a woman's league for better government and framing Robbo for the counterfeiting rig that she and Little John started. <laughs> Unable to fight an angry mob of women, Robbo and his gang flee. Oh uh, okay, so now it's becoming really pretty kind of sexist, but also sort of feminist. Yeah. I mean, she's organizing a group of girls to like, but then they're also like they can't fight them, so that's sex. I'm really confused. Yeah. Is this modern or is this very ancient? What's going on? <laughs> Robbo. Well, they're doing Robin Hood in. 1930s, so it's a little uh, of both. Oh, it hurts. Uh, Robbo and his merry men are reduced to working as Santa Clauses to solicit charitable donations. They watch dumbfounded as Marion steps out of a car with her latest partner, Alan A. Dale. Remember the, the orphanage guy? Remember him? <laughs> who casually gives the Santas money before going off with Marion. So Robin Hood loses. And is also, I don't know. I don't know that 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 was almost as bad as one of those those Bollywood films we had to read about. <laughs> like the plot of that is just as like like why is this happening? Yeah. Uh, uh. Jack Larue what? as tomatoes, Phil Arnold as hat rack, <laughs> Bernard Fine as bananas, Joseph Ruskin as Twitch, <laughs> Hank Harry, Hank Henry as one of the hoods, six seconds. 
I'm sorry. I, I just found some of the names in here and uh, kind of amusing. Yeah, I, I'm kind of curious to see this movie. It was nominated for an Academy Award, but then again, so was Norbit. So. Yeah, let's let's not <laughs> underestimate the ability of the Academy Awards to really throw you a curveball every once in a while. The point is, is that now we can go to my kind of town. Yes, we can. If we want to. Or we can go to Sinatra well, and then go to my kind of town. Let's get, let's get a brief overview of Sinatra and then go to my kind of town. All right, here he is, the man, the myth, the legend. Actually, not really a myth, like we know he's a Yeah. So, yep, yeah, singer, actor, producer, and, um, yeah, one of the best-selling musical artists of all time. And he was born in Hoboken, New Jersey, to Italian immigrants. And he began his musical era career in the swing era with band leaders Harry James and Tommy Dorsey. And he found success as a solo artist after he signed with Columbia Records in 1943, becoming the idol of the Bobby Soxers. The what? I don't know, but it's something. Okay. That has a link to it. I'm just going to bounce over just to... Not be confused anymore. Um, very zealous fans of traditional pop music in the 1940s. Wow. So, that was a really... They came up with their own term for themselves in yeah. specifically that decade yeah. just to be fans of music. Uh, his debut album was The Voice of Frank Sinatra. And that was in 1946. And his professional career stalled by the early 50s. Right. That doesn't seem right. No. Um, he turned to Las, Las Vegas where he became one of its best-known performers as part of the Rat Pack. Oh, okay. So, started up and kind of stalled, and then he went to Vegas, and then he got big again. Mm -hmm. So his career was reborn in 1953 with the success of From Here to Eternity and his subsequent Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Sinatra released several critically lauded albums, including In the Wee Small Hours, Songs for Swingin' Lovers, Come Fly With Me, Only the Lonely, and Nice and, nice and Easy. Um, he left Capitol in 1960. Did it say he ever joined Capitol? Doesn't no. matter. He left in 1960. <laughs> <laughs> At some point in between Columbia and now he uh, joined Capitol and he left Capitol and he started his own record label Reprise Records and had a string of successful albums in 1965 he recorded the retrospective September of My Years and starred in the Emmy winning television special Frank Sinatra A Man and His Music and he scored hits with Strangers in the Night and My Way after releasing Sinatra at the Sands, recorded at the Sands Hotel and Casino in Vegas with frequent collaborator Count Basie in early 1966. So, yeah, he was uh, 
moving quite along. And, um, let's see. I see it mentioned his second wife, Ava Gardner, but I don't see first wife. It doesn't do that thing where it tells you, like, how long he lived. It doesn't have the box under his face. Oh, yeah. You know I mean? Yeah, there's usually an info box there. No associated oh, acts. There, You have to click show. Wait, what? There's a... Why? For some reason, on this article, out of all articles, uh, okay. there's a button to show everything rather than... As a, so, so you can't see his four wives. <laughs> all right, so first wife, Nancy Barbado. So then he married Ava Gardner the same year he was divorced. So he's probably having an affair with her. And then they got divorced and he married Mia Farrow. They got divorced, and he married Barbara Marks. And he died in 1998 at the age of 82. Hmm. He was an only child. Hmm. Kind of interesting. Hmm. He was also delivered with the aid of forceps. He weighed 13.5 pounds at birth. <laughs> Had Seems to be delivered with forceps. Pretty heavy. So that's why he so he has severe scarring on his left cheek, neck, and ear. Hmm. And he had perforated his eardrum during that, which remained damaged for the rest of his life. Kind of impressive for somebody who went into music. Yeah. He also had really, really terrible acne. Really? Yep. During his adolescence, he suffered from cystic acne that scarred his face and neck. Wow. Sinatra began professionally singing as a teenager, but he learned music by ear and never learned to read music. He got his first break in 1935 when his mother persuaded a local singing group, the Three Flashes, to let him join. They had to rename afterwards. <laughs> Fred Tamburo, the group's baritone, stated that Frank hung around us like we were gods or something, admitting that they only took him on board because he owned a car and could chauffeur <laughs> the group around. Sinatra soon learned that they were auditioning for the Major Bowles Amateur Hour show and begged the group to let him in on the act. When Sinatra, with Sinatra, the group became known as the Hoboken Four and passed an audition for from Edward Bowles to appear on the Major Bowles Amateur Hour show. They each earned $12.50 for the appearance and ended up attracting 40,000 votes and won first prize, a six-month contract to perform on stage and radio across the United States. Sinatra quickly became the group's lead singer and, much to the jealousy of fellow group members, garnered most of the attention from girls. Due to the success of the group, Bowles kept asking for them to return disguised under different names, varying from the Secaucus Cacamamies to the Bayonne... Bayani Bacalas. Yep. Hmm. In 1938, Sinatra found employment at a as a singing waiter at a roadhouse called the Rustic Cabin in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, for which he was paid $15 a week. Whoa. <laughs> the roadhouse was connected to the WNEW radio station in New York City, and he began performing with a group live during the dance parade show. Despite the low salary, Sinatra felt that this was his, the break he was looking for and boasted to friends that he was going to become so big that no one could ever touch him. In March of 1939, saxophone player Frank Mann, who knew Sinatra from Jersey City radio station, what? were both performed mm -hmm. on live broadcasts arranged 
for him to audition and record Our Love, his first studio recording. In June, band leader Harry James, who had heard Sinatra sing on Dance Parade, signed a two-year contract of $75 a week one evening after a show at the Paramount Theater in New York. It was the with the James Band that Sinatra released his commercial record from the bottom of my heart in July. No more than 8,000 copies of the record were sold, and further records released through with James through 1939, such as All or Nothing at All, also had weak sales on their initial release. Thanks to his vocal training, Sinatra could now sing two tones higher and developed a repertoire which included songs such as My Buddy, Will It Weep For Me, It's Funny to Everyone But Me, Here Comes the Night, On a Little Street in Singapore, I'm not even going to try to say that one, <laughs> and Every Day of My Life. Cerebrebrin is the one I was afraid to say. <laughs> Do you think um, we should go to Frank Sinatra's discography? Yeah, I really just wanted to touch base on how he started out because that kind of thing like always fascinates me. Like how these yeah. guys like find their way to becoming iconic. And apparently, you uh, learn learn your stuff, join some bands, and uh, get on some radio. Have a car, yeah. be handy to people until they let you sing. Suddenly become the group, the lead singer of the group that was hesitant to let you join in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, you do what everybody else does to get on top. You step on people. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let's let's look for some, uh, you know. So Frank Sinatra discography and. Is always the singers section. I'm gonna take my head of town's in this article. We don't have to go anywhere else. It is? Yep. Yeah. Yep. In 1964, the song My Kind of Town was nominated for Academy Award. It's under reprise years. It's 1961 to 81. There we go. That's my kind of town. Alright. So we already kind of touched on this in both the original pitching and in the Robin and the Hoods thing. But let's see. The actual place in the movie for this song is that he had just been acquitted of murdering the sheriff, uh, which he had been framed for. And then he walks out of the courthouse joyously singing the song with crowds of Chicagoans. I'm trying to see if there's like a, you know, how many it sold, but I'm not seeing that. But yeah. So we did it. We made it. It wasn't even wasn't even that hard. Yeah, it really was. We didn't even really get to it by the avenue that we... Which is normally, like, frantic. Like, we, we were thinking, oh, Italy, Italian. But then we just went to Academy, Academy Awards. <laughs> Which usually, ta- I mean, usually when we go that route, it takes us so far astray that, yeah. like, we can't get... It, it's a challenge to get back. We're Yeah, we're lucky that... Well, I guess we're not that lucky that Academy Award popped up in the article for an entire country. But, but it's an entire country that isn't the United States, that's so true. that's you know that's, true. that's it's kind of stunning that it is there. To be honest, yeah. I but thought they would have had their own. I thought it was going to take us to an Italian Academy Awards. <laughs> no, they go right to ours. 
Yeah. So Francesco Fidanza to my kind of town. So we did what we set out to do, and we've proved to Wikipedia that even when it presents two enticing articles, you can go to both of them. And yeah. So once again, we defeat the Wikipedia guys. We have done it. <laughs> Um, maybe next time we get a uh, a moth and a small town with no people, we'll try to go from the moth to the small town with no people. <laughs> that would make a that can't be unentertaining. That has to be like really like, hard to do. That one we would not be able to stop. And we lucked out. Let's <laughs> face it. Let's face facts. We lucked out. This was a challenge. Oh, yeah. And it we was could leisurely take our time through this one, right? Because we had we had plotted a course. The the Academy yeah. Awards is the Northwest Passage of Wikipedia <laughs> articles. Yeah, uh, that one would be a frantic race to the finish. But well, I don't even know if we'd have enough time in an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We would uh, literally have to resort to just saying titles of articles <laughs> after a certain point. Uh, we might have to go down like the category route or find find animals or something. I don't know, but. Yep. So, outro stuff. If you enjoyed this, please go to facebook.com slash twcpodcast. Give us a like and follow. And head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And um, you can always find new episodes on our website, twc.ericterapy.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Ethel Waters for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles.